0: This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the third and final episode from the seminar series Pope Francis Faith, Politics, and Reformation which originally took place at CTR during the 26th to the 28th of October 2016. Mm-hmm. Discussing the following topic, whose history, reformation, conflict and ecumenism. A conversation is moderated by Sinica Neuhaus and with the members of the panel consisting of Antje Jakalien, Archbishop of the Church of Sweden, Eero Hovvinen, Bishop Emeritus of Helsingfors Diocese of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland and Wolfgang Thunissen, director of the Catholic Johann Adam Merler Institute for Ecumenism in Paderborn. And now I hand over the word to Johanna Gustafsson Lundberg, who will give a word of introduction.
1: Good evening, everyone, and most welcome to the third and final seminar in our seminar series about Pope Francis and the Lutheran and Roman Catholic Common Commemoration of the Reformation in 2017. My name is Johanna Gustafsson Lundberg, and I work at the Center of Theology and Religious Studies. The topic for today's seminar is really focusing on the dialogue between the Lutheran and Roman Catholic Church that made this common commemoration possible the document from conflict to communion is the result of 50 years of ecumenical dialogue and as i said already in my welcoming speech to the first seminar this document has a clear message we cannot change historical events, but we have the responsibility for and the power of how we frame and communicate the meaning of certain historical events for the future generations. The Evangelical Lutheran and Roman Catholic Church are through this dialogue drawn into a community of remembrance. To remember the past always involves a choice a choice of which stories we think are important to tell in the document this becomes very clear when it is stated that and i quote historical remembrance always selects from among a great abundance of historical moments and assimilates the selected elements into a meaningful whole. Because these accounts of the past were mostly oppositional, they not infrequently intensified the conflict between the confessions and sometimes led to open hostility." End of quote. A bit further into the text, it is also underlined that for this reason A common ecumenical remembrance of the Lutheran Reformation is both so important and at the same time so difficult. The seminar today, I hope, will address and elaborate on the challenges, but also the joy and creative aspects of this process of choosing new stories of remembrance. And maybe finding new truths. I say this because I refer to yesterday's seminar, where the main question concerned: Is there a truth, or what do we mean by truth? I think it's with great joy that I now would like to welcome our moderator, Sinica Nojhouse, who is the head of the teaching education here at Lund University, but today. I would also like to underline that you're a very dear colleague at Center for Theology and Religious Studies in Church History. Welcome.
2: Thank you, Johanna, and welcome to this seminar, Whose History, Reformation, Conflict and Ecumenism. On Monday, it's exactly 499 years since the Reformation movement was triggered by Martin Luther's 95 thesis against indulgences. And it's also on this same Monday that Pope Francis will arrive and Lutherans and Roman Catholics will join together in a commemorative year to come. This is a huge event. I really think it's an act of hope that we are having this kind of commemoration. During hundreds of years there has been a lot of focus on conflicts. So much focus that I would like to say that the year to come is also the time for self-criticism and also mourning. But let's go on now. I've got great hopes for the discussion this evening since we have three very prominent guests, all playing key roles in the process of dialogue and the quest for unity. So let me start with the presentation of the guests and the ladies first. (laughs) Antje Jacqueline, since 2014 the Archbishop in the Swedish Lutheran Church. Archbishop Antje has been Associate Professor of Systematic Theology, Religions and Science at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. But for me, she is well known for her writings and interest of dialogue between science and religion and theology. Archbishop Antje is also the former Bishop of the Diocese of Lund. So, welcome back. Thank
3: you.
2: And then Wolfgang Tönnissen. He's a professor in ecumenical theology at the Faculty of Theology Paderborn and director of Jordan A. Möller Institutes for Ecumenique. His list of writings is extensive, and his knowledge and understanding of ecumenical theology and hermeneutics is outstanding. He's also an expert on the Lutheran Roman Catholic Commission on Unity. I'm very happy to wish you herzlich willkommen. <laughs> ja Eero Huovinen, bishop emeritus and the former bishop of the diocese of Helsinki, the Lutheran Church of Finland. He has had a professorship in dogmatics at the Faculty of Theology in Helsinki. And in, in this context, I would really, really like to mention that Bishop Er is the co-chair in the Lutheran Roman Catholic Commission on Unity. And it was this commission that published the report. I'm showing Antje's exemplar. Uh, from conflict to Communion Lutheran Catholic common commemoration of the Reformation 2017 In Finland uh, Eero is a well-known authority when it comes to theological issues (laughs) Now I would like each of the guests to present their own perspective on the theme of the seminar. About ten minutes each. And I would like them to think about how they associate when they think about whose history, reformation, conflict and ecumenism. And you're free to choose if you want to have a balance between these concepts or if you want to investigate some word of it. But I would like to send with you, why is this question about whose history important, and is it? Archbishop Antje.
4: Thank you. So, thank you. And uh, it's wonderful to see so many people here on a Friday night, knowing what people usually want to do on Friday nights. It's extraordinary that you are here. Um, So, yeah, I think I will be a little bit all over the place with these three concepts. Let me start this way. Uh, As many of you know, Martin Luther wanted to renew the church from within, not fragment it. But history took a different part. whatever we mean by history in this sense. The Reformation has reached far uh, great significance for developments in many different areas, everything from the church and the state to education, economy and culture. And as beneficial as those may have been in many respects, The Lutheran community in the shape of the Lutheran World Federation has resolved that the 500th anniversary of the Reformation should not be celebrated in a mode of triumphalism. Rather, there are many good reasons for a commemoration that includes scope for reflection on what has been and on the direction that we want the development to take in so far as we can influence the future. So that's why I think that the meeting in Lund on Monday may gain historic significance. Um, As we already heard, it has been preceded by 50 years of dialogue between the Vatican between the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and the Lutheran World Federation. And the result, well, one of the results, of course, only, one of the results is this book, From Conflict to Communion. It appeared 2013 and it is available now in at least 12 languages which says something about also Reformation having become a global citizen. Not the German affair, not a European affair, but something of a global citizen. Uh, and this thing is groundbreaking in several ways. Uh, the publication is based on what unites us without ignoring what still separates us between Lutherans and Catholics. And for the first time in 500 years, Lutheran and Catholics have now agreed on not just a joint description of history, as big as that is, but also on joint commitments or imperatives, as it's called in the text, for the future. This is new, and it is important in the Church's joint journey towards greater visible unity. So hopefully after this, the time of caricaturing each other, which has been the subject of many reformation anniversaries before, that the time of caricaturing each other is passed once and for all. In Sweden, Catholics and Lutherans have agreed that they want to take the opportunity presented by the anniversary of the Reformation to jointly reflect and also examine each other. At least that's reflected in the purpose statement that uh, for the joint commemoration that has been approved by Stockholm and Uppsala, that is by the uh, Catholic diocese uh, and by uh, the Church of Sweden. And it voices the common intention to quote, express our joy at what we have in common, our penitence due to the damage created by our discord, and our firm intention to together to the world, bear witness to the mercy of God by working for reconciliation, peace, and justice for the entire creation. So, what then was good and bad with Reformation? Now, very briefly and sketchy. Reformation benefited literacy levels in terms of both reading and writing skills, and by extension contributed to the development of democracy. The Protestant clerical family, Prestfamilien, became a cultural factor and the empowerment of each baptized person contributed to both modernization and individualism. The Reformation became a foundation for a long period of political conflicts within and between nations in Europe. The Thirty Years' War tore communities apart and led to tragedies in thousands of families. People suffered persecution for their faith, Monasticism was damaged. The one true doctrine expressed and established by the secular power drew up limits for faith and religious customs that lasted for centuries. And this order has affected Christian believers of different confessions as well as, of course, Jewish and Muslim believers. And when it comes to Sweden, it always must be noted that the fact that the church in Sweden was not reformed from the bottom up is nowadays a clear starting point for modern historical research. And uh, also we need to remember that, um, differently from Germany for instance, uh, in our country the anniversary of the Reformation was not celebrated in 1617 as in the rest of the evangelical Lutheran world. The year chosen was instead 1621, to celebrate that Gustav Vasa had been selected in the town of Mura 100 years earlier to be the governor of the province of Dalarna and the people of the kingdom of Sweden, which laid the foundation for his future role as a king of Sweden. So there was quite little mention made of Luther at that time. It was more about gratitude for divine providence that Sweden, through Luther, had received a new form of access to the Holy Word. And thus, every anniversary has sort of, uh, of course, been the projection screen for the thoughts of the time. And it's not going to be much different this time. It's only... 100 years from now, people will be able to look and say, ah, that was what moved people in 2016 and 2017. Uh, The heritage of the Reformation in Sweden is problematically connected to the creation of the nation-state and its politics. Reformation was implemented top-down and often contrary to the will of the general public. In some Parts of the country weapons were used to defend the old tradition. And preserved sources show that in many places people held onto the old traditions far into the 17th century. For example, it was common practice in some places that parishioners demonstratively entered the church after the sermon to take part in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion. Despite this, the split between the old and the new was not as radical as it could seem. Um, It's it's quite interesting to note, especially when you uh, compare to German terminology, that church terminology in this country was preserved, such as mass, priest, um, uh, consecration, was retained unchanged. As in Sweden, there was not the same pressure to create a clear profile vis-a-vis the Catholic Church as in Germany, for instance. When the priest became a pastor, the consecration became ordination, uh, the mass became the service with, uh, with the Eucharistic service or with Holy Supper, or so on. During Sweden's era as a great power in the 17th and 18th centuries, New spiritual literature also started to be read in wider circles. This included texts originally written in medieval monastery <coughs> environments. Writings from the Ignatian tradition were also distributed. And Lutheran theologian um, Johann Arndt, who became somewhat of that era's bestseller author, partly based his work on text by a Franciscan tertiary, Angela of Foligno. So at the same time that Sweden took part in a bloody war on the continent in order to, what was said, defend the true doctrine, spiritual literature in Sweden was nevertheless highly open to ecumenical influences. And see, that's the complexity of history all the time almost paradoxical, they go and defend with war the pure doctrine, that is what they did, Uh, and at the same time they are reading sort of ecumenical literature. After 500 years, it is perhaps easier than ever to achieve a balanced view of the Reformation that can commemorate both continuity and discord, benefits and oppression the joy of the rediscovery of the power of the gospel in terms of justification by grace through faith became a perennial gift to the church to be celebrated over and over again. Nevertheless, what can be said from a Lutheran perspective about every Christian person also applies to some extent to the Reformation itself. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, both righteous and sinner. And there are some severe sins. You all have heard about Luther's writings about Jews that have contributed to a devastating hate of Jews. And also, of course, it's painful to read about the hard-hitting propaganda machine against what was known as papism, anti-Catholic sentiment. And... Extreme orthodoxies' witch hunt against people's perceptions of faith, such as Sami drums, or what was called the witchery of women from the province of Dalarna, for instance, or this whole sad chapter of marriage between people from the different confessions being forbidden, counteracted with many personal tragedies in consequence free churches in this country have had to fight against the state church monopoly so the both and so frequent in history and yet so often neglected when either winners or losers or so-called winners and so-called losers tell their stories that deserves attention of course also in this respect it is obvious But it still needs to be said, the story of Sweden's religious history is bigger than that of the Church of Sweden. It also encompasses the free churches, the Roman Catholic Church, and increasingly also Orthodox spiritual traditions. When the anniversary of the Reformation is commemorated in our country, it will take place at the same time that Christianity is experiencing a growth phase. Europe no longer dominates the worldwide fellowship of churches. Secularization in the northern hemisphere has occurred relatively quickly in the past few decades, while the number of Christians is growing substantially in the south. It is, after all, no coincidence that the pope is Argentinian and that the general secretary of the Lutheran World Federation is from Chile. Discord between Catholics and Lutherans is not at all, in the same way, part of the historical heritage for Christians in those other parts of the world. The challenge for the worldwide Christian fellowship does not primarily comprise confessional differences, but instead issues concerning social injustice armed conflicts and poverty the changes to the religious and political landscape have led to greater ecumenical openness than ever before and are characterized by globalization and its consequences so um, it needs to be said As also the Lutheran World Federation has put it, that the anniversary of the Reformation should be commemorated in a spirit of ecumenical accountability, global awareness, and a continued will to to be reformed. And also from Catholics, there have been strong signals in recent months in favor of ecumenical openness and fellowship. And I have at least four of them, I'm not going to tell you all of them, that can be saved for the discussion, but the one that's uh, sort of radiating over them all is the latest example of the Pope uh, giving this uh, unique interview uh, published by uh, Dagens Nyheter today, where it's so clear that the message is together we need to move forward. And maybe it was a bad idea to mention this. Uh, don't go now and, and <laughs> pull out your devices and read it. <laughs> St- stay here in this room, even, even mentally. Um, but I think that's, that's really where they are. And uh, that's where I
2: will stay for now. Yeah, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Professor Wolfgang Then.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for the nice invitation to take part into this uh, discussion this evening. And I'm happy to present uh, some ideas uh, we have had as we describe the process of uh, this uh, common commemoration. And I will give you some insights in the way of thinking uh, we have made in the international uh, dialogue group, Lutheran Catholic dialogue group. I think um, if we assess uh, this uh, whole complex of historical events between 1517 and 1555, terms and conditions, uh, course and uh, historical impact of this time have to be considered uh, in one perspective. We can thus create a vivid picture of this era. The evaluation of the complexity of events called Reformation cannot be made solely by its efforts, we call it in Germany, or in German, Wirkung. That is only from the perspective of the rupture of the church possible, but it must also take into account the conditions which leave scope for the reform movements of the late Middle Ages. And let us put aside the effects of the Reformation as the only possible approach. If the effect Of the Kirch of what we call Kirchenspaltung division is not directly the result of certain conditions but the result of a complex multi-perspective history, then we can open alternative ways, enabling us to consider the whole complex of events in a more appropriate way. In this perspective, the query to the event of the year 1517 called Reformation and its most important persons can be put together. Thus, the different factors of schism, of reform, of reformation, or of reformations in the plural, came together into one view. This is a challenge of our time, I think. The analysis highlights these different aspects that are connected under a certain tension. The different perspectives are not identical but they can complement each other. There is no longer a single controversial theological and denominational fixed approach. Above all, it would be necessary to consider what the result of this inquiry is. In 2017, Lutheran and Catholic Christians are faced with the task of a common commemoration of the publishing of the indulgence 500 years ago. They will fulfill this task from different starting points, but in the spirit of an ecumenical cooperation. However, it will not be the first time in 2017 that they remember of people and events of the Reformation. Uh, Already 1918, marking the 405th anniversary of the Augsburg Confession. Offered Lutherans and Catholics the opportunity to develop a common understanding in basic truths, referring to Jesus Christ as a living center of our Christian faith. Marking the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther in 1983, there were some significant concerns to emphasize Luther together. Neither the Protestant nor Catholic Christianity can pass by the figure and the message of this person. (laughs) The 20th century offered Catholic theology the opportunity to assess Luther anew. The intensive study of the person and the work of Martin Luther made it possible to recognize him as a man witnessing the gospel, as a teacher in faith, and caller for spiritual renewal. Whenever we commemorate important historical events, we have to consider the question how do we deal with the legacy of the past? This heritage contains mostly useful as well as incriminating aspects. That is made all the more evident by the fact that the Reformation was perceived and interpreted contradictory for many centuries. Past memories were featured in matters of triumphalism, We are the true Church and polemics. Accordingly, the word Reformation has very different connotations, either the division of the Church or the recovery of the Gospel. The word Reformation is not only taken in different connotations, but also as two completely different things. Reformation can be called a particular theological overall conception, It can also refer to a sequence of events of the years between 1517 and 1555, which includes a range of events such as the banishment of Luther, the Peasant War, the Augsburg Confession, the Smalkoldic War, the Interim, the Peace of Augsburg, etc. If we use this term, Reformation, we have to explain our understanding of this word. For a common commemoration, it is therefore necessary to designate the outlines of the historical conflict to be commemorated. In view of the year 2017, it is now the opportunity for a common ecumenical reflection on these conditions and I will stress this point of view, ecumenical reflection, the course and the effects in a common view. This, I think, is a new stage in the Lutheran-Catholic encounter. A clear and unvarnished view on the sequence of events finally shows how the perception of the Reformation has changed among Catholics and Lutherans. The common reflection omits such moments which will show the other side or their institutions in a most possible bad light. Comprehensive and differentiated treatments of the historical period of the Reformation will no longer work with a light, a dark color, but with a differentiated color palette. This more colorful image abandons contours which have hitherto remained undiscovered or underexposed. Uh, As The result of such a view is reflected in the comparison Luther did not unilaterally abolished church doctrine tradition, but sought to renew it. He did not primarily provoke a break with the church, although this occurred as an effect. He did not hastily create ecclesiastical structures to build a new church, although this was a result of the clashes. The Council of Trent did not condemn Luther as before Leo X did, but its reform efforts replied in a differentiated way to Luce's reform concepts without referring to them explicitly. I think that is one of the main ideas to differentiate between implicitly and uh, explicitly. Maybe I can explain it uh, in the discussion. This is even more that the Second Vatican Council did. This council is thus no correction of trend but performs its guiding perspective that of the spiritual and intellectual renewal of the Church. The Council of Trent becomes not unilaterally a Council of the Counter-Reformation, although this is what the Catholic Church understood for a long time, how the Council of Trent works. But it provides an answer to the issues raised by the Reformation. In conjunction with the reform of the Church, the great task of the Council of Trent begins to enforce in the present to contribute to the healing of the confessional di- diversion instead of deepening it. What is the result of such common historical and hermeneutical efforts? I quote, What has happened in the past cannot be changed. What is, however, reminded of the past and how that happens can actually change over time. Reminder makes the past present. While the past is itself unchanging, the presence of the past in the present that is variable. End of the quote. The past must be justified in the present. The past must be justified in the present. We are responsible how the past works in our present time. That is our responsibility. Lutherans and Catholics do no longer judge and denigrate each other because they feel they are forced by the historical events. They are free to deal with the events and the consequences that don't force them to a specific answer, but allow them new orientations. Thus, the perception of the past is beginning to change. What has been regarded as incontrovertible judgment is no longer a true answer. No longer a true answer. Lutherans and Catholics are not divided at all times from each other, and against each other. That opens a new horizon in which Lutherans and Catholics can do many things uh, together. Uh, To look upon the history in different but common uh, idea and uh, to look on the effects of what we call the Reformation and put some things together and to see what is renewing in the church that is a common challenge for both and more things in this uh, common perspective. That is uh, the uh, hermeneutical idea uh, behind uh, the document uh, from conflict uh, to communion. We uh, didn't describe this idea, but it was the working idea for the writers of this uh, paper and they show them that we have to learn from each from uh, each other side thank you so much
2: thank you and bishop emeritus Eero. <coughs>
5: Very grateful for the invitation and especially happy to see good friends here tonight. I only want to mention Gunilla Ulsson and Elisabeth Jarle. I think many others too. I have a feeling like a young pastor who, the first time in his ministry, had to go to jail, to the prison, and, and have their uh, prayers, prayer service. And and he was a little bit nervous. And, but he wanted to be popular with the listeners, and, and he started and said, I'm so happy that there are so many of you today. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not to be impolite <laughs> when I'm, I can already in the very beginning say that I'm a little bit, little bit critical with the title of today, whose history, but let's reflect on that. I understand the question, whose history, in the way that we have to ask who is the owner of history. Who has history in his or her hands? The archbishops? The professors? The politicians? Those who have money? The men or the women? Is it in principle possible that somebody can be an owner of history? Or is history something which can never be acclaimed to be one's own? Whose history? History is something that belongs to the past, like an arrow which has been shot, like a word which has been said, it cannot call be back it cannot call back history simply is as it was leopold von ranke famous german historian has said that we have to understand the history wie es eigentlich gewesen ist On the one hand, I'm aware about the hermeneutical difficulties of his idea, but on the other hand, there is an important core in his philosophy of history. We modern people, when I'm speaking about the modern people, I think people in the two last centuries, we modern people like to emphasise our ability to interpret history in our own way to find new insights to tell the old story for our time and there is something true in this intention it may be that we do not have always seen the important some important aspects of history that's why I understand the necessity of reinterpreting history. On the other hand, I think we have to be self critical and ask ourselves whether we today speak more about the, our own favorite ideas or about the history as such. To see you also. <laughs> after the Enlightenment, that means in the end of 1700s. After the Enlightenment, the so-called anthropological shift, the turning to the subject, turning to the individual person has very widely influenced, especially our Western philosophy and their theology as well. It seems that we all want to look at the world and at the heavens as well through our own eyeglasses. The truth depends on our own presuppositions of knowledge. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant is a church father of modern Protestantism. It is, according to him, it's impossible to know something about the ideas and truths as such. About über die Dinge an sich, das Ding an sich. I understand. You have discussed this topic already yesterday night.
2: Le- yeah, they did. They discussed that yesterday night, but I wasn't here.
5: Did they solve also the problem?
2: I don't think, no, no, they didn't solve it.
5: So, do you allow me to continue? Yes, today? absolutely. You're very welcome to continue. So, it's very natural and modern to ask whose history. There is no history as such, only my or your interpretation. Although I'm critical with the development after the After Enlightenment, I have to admit that the temptation to own history is not a new phenomenon for humankind. Let's take only one example, and once again, from the title of our discussion. Reformation turned out very soon to be a battle about owning history. Only some months and some years after the 95 thesis of Martin Luther, the battlefield was divided into two opposite parties. On the one side was the Pope and his divisions, on the opposing side was Martin Luther and other reformers, who was the owner of the history. Who presented the right interpretation of the Christian faith? Whose history? When we look at the centenaries in 1617, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking now about Sweden. When we look at the centuries in 1617, in 1770 in 1870 and 1970s, it's quite easy to see how much the battle was influenced by the question, whose history? The other part was heretics, we have the truth. And that that was said on both parties. We Lutherans, we had the right doctrine, the Catholics, they were, were, the Pope was an Antichrist, And you were heretics. No, no, they were
3: heretics.
5: (laughs) And the Catholics said the same. The question whose history is a question of power. We or you? We or you? It is quite easy to see how the aspect of power leads into split, polarization, division and separation and schism. The question, whose history has walked hand in hand with the split of the Western Christian Church? In the last 50 or 70 years, that's an interesting question when the change began, but in the the last 50 or 70 years, we have seen signals from an other atmosphere between the churches. Since the sufferings of the Second World War, since the Holocaust, since the birth of the ecumenical movement, we are now in Lund, we have to remember that, since the beginning of the ecumenical movement, since serious theological research and since the Second Vatican Council, We need not to ask who is the owner of the history. History is our common task. We have to seek the truth together. So let's forget the the title of tonight. (laughs) (laughs) That was also the main idea of the Lutheran Roman Catholic document, From Conflict to Communion. I'm here in Lund tonight only to promote this title and slogan, From Conflict to Communion. If you take the document in your hand or you go to the internet and look it there, and if you have only 10 seconds time to read it, that's enough. Ten seconds starting from conflict to communion, from conflict to communion, from conflict to communion. <laughs> After that, you are experts in ecumenical theology. <laughs> That's enough. We can both, Volkan and I, we can say this is not, in all pages, it is not an as easy document as Donald Duck but I think you can read the preface and the five imperatives which are in the end of this book. And I'm sure everybody everybody here, and I'm sure everybody in Lund, can understand that. Let's take only the first imperative, the ecumenical imperative. Catholics and Lutherans should always begin from the perspective of, uni, of unity and not from the point of view of division in order to strengthen what is held in common, even though the differences are more easily seen and experienced. I'm sure that the title of this book can be help in everyday life, in working life, in families, in politics, in relations between generations, in relation between genders, and last but not least between churches and within the churches. Instead of speaking who is the owner of the history, it's more fruitful to speak how we can find a way from conflicts to communion. This intention is not a new one. Already Apostle Paul was aware of that when he said, and I quote from the first letter to Corinthians, "I I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there might be no divisions among you and that you may perfectly united in mind and thought my brothers and i can correct the Apostle Pauls and say that uh, my brothers and sisters from some from close household that is supposed a family in Corinth some from close household have informed me that there are quarrels among you what i mean is this One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And then Paul concludes Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? I will end with the quote of this document. The words are originally not ours. They are said by the Pope John XXIII. He said, the things that unite us are greater than those that divide us. The things that unite us are greater than those that divide us.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Would you like to comment on each other, or could I send you one question with you and then comment? Okay. <laughs> yeah, so go for it.
4: <laughs> I, I was so intrigued by your critique of the, of the title, Whose History? Uh, can one own, can man be an owner of history? And your answer was no. Uh, my answer would be uh, threefold. Well, that's good for theology threefold (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, I would say yes one even must own one's history or I would say um, maybe and I would say no (laughs) and uh, this is this is how I think Um, yes one must own one's history in order to be released from its shadows And I think that can apply both individually, when you speak of forgiveness of sins. In a sense, you must own your history in order to be released from its shadows. It applies to peoples. It would apply, for instance, to the German people after the period of Nazism. It applies to people who have been subject to colonialism. If you don't own that history, you can't be released from its shadows, I think. Um, And um, um, you also need to own your history in order to understand the dynamics of power. That's I think you mentioned this power. Uh, And you also need to own your history in order to have a, a future. Because if you don't have a history, It's hard to have a future, and I'm drawn again to this uh, wonderful uh, conversation today published that uh, Ulf Jonsson, the editor-in-chief of Signum, has had with Pope Francis. And when he asked the Pope, what are your hopes for your visit to Sweden, the Pope says, this is what I spontaneously hope, let us go forward together. Don't, don't let us get locked into rigid plans for the future. Let us be open to reforms. And I think you can only have this uh, attitude if you, in some sense, own a history. You can say these things. So that would be my, my yes answer. One must in order to be released from, from the shadows of history, in order to understand the dynamics <coughs> of power, and in order to have a future. My maybe would be one must try to in order to understand the role of forgetting. Um, And I'm not finished with that thought, so I'll just leave it there. And my third answer, no, would be, uh, you can never own it in a sense that there always needs to be a multi-perspectivity. There always needs to be a multiplicity of perspectives. Um, That gives you um, a better sense of the complexities of histor- history, and even of the paradoxes of his ter- history, and the
2: ambiguity of history. Thank you. Would you like to answer? Yes. Yeah. I. I'm, see not,
5: that. I'm not answering. I, I. I only want to continue. I don't <laughs> think that there is big difference between us when you say that you have to own the history. It's. It depends very much on that. What we mean, what we mean with the words "own." Mm. Mm. Let me take an example. If I read a book, the phenomenon is not only that I, as a, as a person, is reading the book, but the book is reading also me. And that's the same with the history. The, in order to get free from the shadows of the history, I use only that mm. picture. It might be possible when the when the history is reading you. So you don't own you are not you, you are not um, Caesar or you are not the King of the history. You, your personal interpretation is not the main issue in, in listening to the history and learning from history. The history is judging you or me, me, I'm not speaking about you, but... It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, his- the history of judging us, and that's the way to get free from the, cha- the shadows and the, and the dark sides of the history. What, what do, you, do
4: you... Do you mean that the... No, oh, sorry. It was working. Do you mean that it's the history from the past that is judging us today, or do you mean that's history that is future today? That's good. it's going to judge us. That's the way we usually think that those uh, uh, yeah, 10, 20 years or 50 years, they're going to judge us from their perspective. But you do think actually that the Reformation is judging us today?
5: The history.
4: Hist- we better leave it on. <laughs> the,
5: the history of the Reformation is looking at us in a critical way. And if we see the shadows there, that is, that is correcting us and helping us to get free from those mm. shadows.
4: Well, history doesn't look, but history. history itself doesn't look at us. But narratives of the history told by somebody else will look at, it, at us. History is not an agent in itself. Or is it?
5: Sure. <laughs> what has happened? The phenomenon of the Reformation can judge about us.
4: Well, I can allow myself to be judged by it. But the, the Reformation cannot just step up here and, and say, now you are judged.
5: I think the history has um, the power in itself, itself it is not depending on our interpretation. We, we are not, um, we are only listeners of the history and when we listen to the history, it can judge us.
4: Sh- sure, in the sense that we are listening to the history as it is told to us in a book or by a person, then I agree. <laughs>
5: This this is a very wide philosophical. Yeah. Curve. <laughs> it
2: looks like yeah. Professor. Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I am <I>, um, <laughs> a I am a little bit uh, skeptical. I think um, uh, we are not the owners of the history. We are not the owners of the history. That means. Uh, Can we be the owners of the whole history? No, we are a part of the history and also Or in this way, we are a part of the history. We are responsible for our time and What is present in our time that is our responsibility to do do it and we have the challenge We have the challenge that is the challenge of the Reformation and the Reformation is a fact whatever this means but uh, how we deal with this challenge That is our uh, task. That is our uh, responsibility. And therefore, we can say that the mm, Reformation is uh, putting us questions, but we are those who listen on uh, these questions. The Reformation put us to our time. Um, Let me say it in in this way. Um, Facts are only facts if they are in a living history, facts as alone, is nothing. What has happened at the beginning of the 18th century? Napoleon devastated Europe. But what does this mean for our time, if we had no remembrance, remembrance of this? Nothing. But if we are remembering these facts, then this history works. And I think we are a part of a horizon in which the past, the present, and the future are working together, but not in the way there is a past and then comes a present and then comes the future. But the future can be a part of the uh, can be a part of the past, and the past uh, can be a part of the future. That's working um, uh, together, and it's uh, working uh, not only in this course of uh, past, present, and future. But there are challenges of the past working uh, in the future. I think uh, the challenge of the Reformation will put us questioned, I think, in, 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 in the next hundred years. But in another way, and that is our responsibility, how does this challenge work in our time? And for that we are responsible. I think that it's quite the, the idea of what uh, the German philosopher Hans-Georg Gadamer is uh, meant with his uh, idea of uh, uh, putting himself uh, into a, a horizon of uh, history, and then uh, we have to uh, to see what uh, this means for me if I are part of this horizon.
4: But then again. <laughs> um, I mean, none of us has a remembrance of the Big Bang, and yet it affects us hugely. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So it's not just that we sort of have, a, have an interpreting remembrance. Uh, is is there maybe an analogy uh, to our relationship to nature, our relationship to history and our relationship no. to nature? I mean, in some senses, we separate ourselves from nature, and we 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 look at it we observe it uh we behave as if we weren't part Mm -hmm. of nature Mm -hmm. we even sell pieces of nature we own it literally (laughs) uh and yet again we are Mm. parts of nature and we even products of its evolution uh maybe that applies to history as well
5: Mm,
3: I put it in the uh, horizon of uh, theology, and I think we are, uh, we are uh, a part of a living history because we are a part of a community, and this community is called church or mm. churches or church history. Mm. You can call it on the uh, meta uh, level. Mm. And that means uh, that uh, we are remembering uh, events only in such a way that we are members of this Uh, community of Remembering the church is a community of remembering uh, her uh, history Uh, the history uh, of the New Testament the history of the Old Testament and the history in uh, in which works these uh, ideas of the New Testament and the Old Testament that's a working progress and insofar we can say that a church is a community of hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 so you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you look a little bit like you would like to make a remark on that
5: mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether I have a too strong confidence to the auto efficiency of the history. The history can be. Many years and decades silent, but sometimes it happens that the history is starting to to speak to us. There has been many despots in the history who who have tried to forget the history and say to the people that you you don't have an history, you, you you are you are not right people. You, your your history should be damaged. But after years and decades, it only becomes to happen that the history is starting to say the truth, and nobody knows who, who, how it starts once again to speak. Mm. One, one question is, for example, the, the national background of, of many nations. Mm. Very often, the, the nationality has, the despots has tried to put it down. But after 100 years, it starts once again to speak. This may be not very interesting discussion.
2: Yeah. <laughs> or, may- <laughs> yeah. but, but or maybe it is, because may- I think...
5: We have rem- to be more concrete. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah.
2: isn't it interesting, the, the, the importance of remembering, but also trying to forget, and sometimes I think we forget things that we should remember, the de- despots trying to get the people to forget, but I... I w- I was writing down some words that you said, and I said, oh, this is exciting. Uh, History as an arrow, history as a battlefield, that's Bishop Emeritus Eero, (laughs) but then also multi-perspective from Professor Thomason, and then history and the anniversary as a projection screen, was what Archbishop Antje was using the word. And I was thinking of the word commemoration, what do we do when we commemorate? And would you consider that in this process of commemoration there is place for mourning, for forgiveness, for remembering and trying to forget and some things coming up in there? Mm.
3: Mm. I think one of the main part of our uh, common commemoration is uh, to, uh, to forgive each other. Mm. What we have done in the past, not what we, what our foreigners yeah. have done in the past, only not to, get to condemn them in the new way, but uh, to, to seek uh, or, or to, to look uh, carefully uh, on that what they have done and what that means for our time and for us, and how can we handle this? Uh, challenge in our time, and that is a that is a big uh, grasp, I, I think. Um, But uh, we have to overcome this uh, big uh, grasp uh, of our history. And and, and that means that it's a work in progress uh, and process um, over all the time. And uh, and that's uh, my idea of of, of history. History um, without tradition is nothing. Uh, Tradition is a transmission of what has happened in the past. And then we are living in this uh, community, the Roman Catholic Church or theology has a, a living or a spiritual idea of what uh, does that mean, tradition. That, not, that um, doesn't mean there are tradition of this and that, but that is the idea of tradition, of what we call überlieferung. that is what is given to us, the history. Uh, the uh, what in in the question of uh, who is who owns uh, our history i think uh, we are uh, the means of history we are the means of
5: history through us uh, works the history in our time i'm very much interested how did the change in the ecumenical atmosphere start 550 years we were enemies, Lutherans yep. and Catholics. Yep. We were yep. 550 yep. years enemies. Yep. What was the origin, and what was, what was, what is the explanation that the atmosphere changed? We can say, okay, John the 23rd, Second Vatican Council, but what was behind that? Yep. What what happened? Mm. What is the reason that the atmosphere is better now? Yeah.
4: For many reasons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not only individuals, but also, of course, the the context. I mean, why did Lutheran churches uh, uh, come together and found the Lutheran World Federation here in 1947? One of the reasons, of course, was the experience of the war, and this Mm. never again. Why why couldn't we prevent that Christian nations... um, go to war with each other? Shouldn't the gospel be ranked higher than nationalism? And twice in one century, never again, and of course then there was this common, common desire to, to, to care for the, for the refugees in, in, in Europe. So I think that is one strain of why that happened. It was not just one wise man somewhere sitting behind his desk and saying, now we are going to start ecumenism. I mean, oftentimes this, these movements start in, in several... They, they mushroom uh, in several places, and, and that's always fascinating. Me, I me, mean, how, how does that happen, that these uh, things mushroom, that you get the similar developments in, in several places almost at the same time without probably knowing about them? Because that gets harder and harder to prove in in our time when you have electronic communication all over the place. You can never prove that this was an isolated phenomenon. Somebody saw it on Facebook somewhere. Um, So, um, yeah, I think multi-causality. We have had a tendency uh, to think, especially when it comes to, to ideas in terms of monocausality more than I think was realistic. Mm
5: -hmm. I agree with you, what you said about the meaning of the second world war. I think suffering always brings the Mm -hmm. people together. Mm -hmm. If you see a suffering person, you can't be, it touches Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. the aid, the relief work after the Second between the churches, mm. mm-hmm. is one very important matter on the grassroots level which has promoted the ecumenism. The people were not so much theologians. Mm. You can mm. be aware that I, I have nothing against the theologians, but, <laughs> but, but they were not theologians. No. They were people who noticed the need of the suffering people, mm-hmm. and I think that that is not important only in the ecumenism, mm-hmm. but in a, other fields of the life. Mm-hmm. And second, one one another topic is I think you mentioned you touched it also that is that the people did be acquainted with us, they, this look the faces of other people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the. Scandinavian Airlines and the Finnair has helped ecumenism very much because the people can travel and see people. Somebody is coming out to Sweden or Finland. That helps ecumenism. If you see the face of people belonging to the other denomination.
2: And would you even say that we need to rediscover that we need each other because the suffering focuses on the need of each other? Yes.
4: Mm-hmm. The current pope speaks of the ecumenism of martyrdom. I mean that the martyrdom we are um, seeing these days, especially in the Middle East, mm. is also a power that obliges us to um, ecumenism. And another force in these days, of course, is interfaith dialogue. Uh, I mean, with with other religions than Christian religion being present. Uh, in your neighborhood, something happens, of course, to the ecumenical uh, dialogue as well. It doesn't make it superfluous, but, of course, something happens when we sit as uh, representatives from different branches of a Christian church, and at the other side of the table we have Muslims, Hindus, or Jews, or or Buddhists. Uh, Then all of a sudden they view us (laughs) as Christians no matter what kind of church we belong to. Uh, And of course that does something to how we perceive of ecumenism as well. Again, the theological nitty-gritty is not superfluous, but it's not the
2: most decisive thing in this world, i say as a (laughs) theologian. You're actually making it rather easy for me, or difficult, because I, I, I don't tend to ask my questions, because I see you and you just want to make a remark, so go for
3: it. If I had to explain what ecumenism is, or uh, uh, ecumenism started in the, in the past, and we look for a very short moment at the history in, uh, of the ecumenical movement, or ecumenical thinking in Germany, at the beginning of what I call the dark uh, the dark age between 1933 and 1945. In this time began a new, uh, began the um, thinking of ecumenical, ecumenical movement. Why? It was the, the outstanding of the political uh, sphere that Christians are confronted with a politician that is not Christian. Mm-hmm. And therefore they move together that was the pressure from the political side. But that's not all. And they began to speak while sitting at some tables. And they tell or told stories. The Lutheran told the story of his history, the Roman Catholic told the story of his history. And then they made a discovery. And uh, what kind of discovery? The Roman Catholic theologian, his experience was in this manner. He saw a Lutheran theologian speaking of his own history, but what he had heard was not the same what he has in mind. It was a difference. And this difference at the beginning of the ecumenical movement and the ecumenical uh, thinking, it's first of all a rethinking of history. Why has a, had a Roman Catholic theologian uh, such an evaluation of a Lutheran theologian thinking that is a heretic? Why? What's the reason of this uh, idea? And hearing this history of the Lutheran,